this is our final sermon in our series in Luke's Gospel. It's been the biggest series um, we've ever looked at. I, I've loved spending time um, studying and preaching it. Um, we, we've done it in blocks for about three years now. Um, for those of you who like numbers, we reckon it's been 85 sermons. Um, that's more episodes than Downton, Line of Duty, um, and even Only Fools and Horses. Um, it's nearly as many as the Rocky films. But we've had 85 sermons in Luke's Gospel. And what we're going to do, we're going to wrap things up tonight, and then hopefully set things up, because we're going to have season two. We're going to look at Acts, which is basically Luke part two. We're going to look at Acts um, later on. So it's early evening on Resurrection Sunday, and we're introduced to two of Jesus's wider circle of friends. You'll remember from this morning we looked at how uh, the women came to the grave um, and they, they, was kinda, they, they were so upset they, they couldn't see what was happening. Um, and then Peter came to the grave. It's starting to dawn on people that Jesus has risen, but not everyone. And so these, these two friends, um, or these two people, they're not part of the twelve, but they're, they're close we're told one of them's called Cleopas. Now we know from Luke 19 that Cleopas, or Clopas, but we think it's Cleopas, is Jesus' uncle. And so this is probably Cleopas and Mary, Jesus' earthly uncle and auntie. That's who we think it is. And they're, walking, they're probably walking home to Emmaus. It's a village about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And they're sad and they're discouraged and they're disillusioned. And what I want us to see tonight is how, how the Lord deals with people who are sad and disillusioned and need building up. And I want us to see how he deals with us. I know it sounds corny, but the Emmaus road is quite often our road. And we're going to see four ways that Jesus deals with his people. Now, we're going to see them as, as kind of four stages, but I think as we look at these four stages of how Jesus deals with his people, we, we go back and forth on, on this road all the time. Sometimes we're in stage four, sometimes we're stage two. You get the picture. And the first stage is this, that Jesus meets us where we are. Jesus meets us where we are, and often long before we realize. Jesus meets us where we are, and often, long, uh, long before we realize. We see that in verse 13 to verse 24. It doesn't take much imagination to, uh, to understand how this couple are feeling. It's been a long walk home in every sense. The thing that they've been hoping for, verse 21, was that the Christ would redeem Israel, that the, the, the Christ would save Israel. And it hasn't happened. These are people who loved Jesus. They trusted, they hoped in Jesus, but they didn't quite get it. They'd have heard Jesus preach about his death. They'd have heard Jesus preach about his resurrection. But just like those devoted women this morning, just like the disciples this morning, they hadn't grasped it yet. And we think, well, how could you not see it? But, but they couldn't. There's things we should see and we don't. And they were gutted. The, the hopes had been dashed. And as they walk, this stranger draws alongside. Now, obviously, we know who the stranger is. It's the risen Christ, but they don't know who it is. We're told in verse 16, their eyes are restrained. I think that means Jesus restrained them. Jesus stopped them from seeing initially who he was. But I think also it's true to say in the grief, they didn't see who Jesus was. 
And Jesus says to them, what are you talking about? And they begin to tell him. They can't believe that this stranger doesn't know what's been going on. They say everybody in Jerusalem knows what's happened the last few days. And they explain about Jesus' might and Jesus' preaching ministry and Jesus' death and Jesus' crucifixion and their hope of redemption and the rumors about the empty tomb. But in the grief, they don't connect the dots. You think, well, connect the dots, the empty tomb. Jesus said he was going to rise, but they don't see it. They can see everything except Jesus has risen. And I think we can identify with Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas in that. They obviously loved and they obviously hoped in Jesus. But in the grief and in the circumstances, they couldn't see clearly. Doesn't that describe you and me? We trust, we love, we hope, but in our circumstances, we can't quite connect the dots. But Jesus is walking with them. The one who they hoped in, the one who they were so disappointed because he's gone, he was walking with them. But they didn't know it. And I think that's our experience as well, isn't it? As we come to faith in Jesus, we begin to see Jesus has actually been alongside us long before we realized. Even as believers, I, I, I see this in myself. Sometimes because of grief or because of stress or because of disappointment, we fail to see the whole picture that, that Jesus is actually with us. I fail to connect the dots and, uh, and, and see what's right in front of me because I, I fail to see that Jesus is walking with me all along. Sometimes because my own mind's clouded, my heart's clouded. Sometimes maybe it's because the Lord is withholding his felt presence from me. But he's there. One of the helpful ways to interpret Luke 24 is that the lights are gradually coming on. Jesus has risen, but it's only gradually dawning on his followers. And I think that relates to us as well. We often don't get it all at once, do we? We often have to be told 10, 20, 30, 40 times, and then it, it lands with us. We think, how could any of Jesus' followers not connect the dots? How could they not get, when they saw the empty tomb, that, oh yeah, he's risen? How, we can, how blind can we be to God's promises? How blind can we be to, to what we know to be true about God when we're hurt and we're disappointed and we're upset? But the reality is that Jesus met these people where they were. They were walking, they were in grief. That's where Jesus comes to them. Didn't even know we were there, but he's with them. And he doesn't leave them like that, but he meets them like that. And we see the second thing that Jesus does. He, Jesus opens our hearts and our eyes. We see that in verse 25 to 35. Again, it's gradual. It's, it's more gradual than we feel it should be. But after listening to them, Jesus responds in verse 25. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses... And all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is why people talk about the Emmaus Road. Some people talk about a Damascus Road experience, don't they? You know, a blinding experience where everything suddenly clicks. But for most of us, our experience is an Emmaus Road experience. We see things gradually. 
Jesus begins to teach them how the whole Bible talks about him. Remember, they haven't realized it's him yet, but he's saying the whole Bible points to Jesus. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. And so Jesus starts with Moses and then the prophets. That doesn't mean that Jesus started at Exodus with, with Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Jesus started at the beginning of Genesis. And he goes all the way through to the last prophet. And he's showing them, this is all about me. I'm jealous of Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas because I think if there's one sermon I'd love to have listened to in history, it would have been this one. Jesus does a, a full biblical theology. The Old Testament's a bit like a, a mystery novel. The clues are there all along. If you're really looking, you can see who, who it is all along. But as you go along, the clues become more clear. And by the time you come to the end, you're certain who it is. And when you look back, it all makes sense. Well, Jesus says the whole of the Old Testament's about me. The, the clues, they're not just clues. That it's obvious it's all about me. Jesus is the one who spoke creation into being. Jesus is the one who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Jesus is the one who is promised will crush the serpent. Jesus is the, the, the one that the ark pictures when it says, flee to, flee to spare God's wrath. Jesus is the promised son that, that suffered in Isaac's place. Jesus is the ladder that, that Jacob sees. He's the access up and down to heaven. Jesus is the Passover lamb who removes God's wrath. Jesus is the bread from heaven who feeds his people in the wilderness. Jesus is the rock that, that Moses strikes and water comes out. Jesus is the, the tabernacle and the temple. It is God's presence with his people on earth. Jesus is the one who the, the whole sacrificial system points to. Every time that an animal was, was slaughtered, it was a picture that for sin to be paid for, something has to die. Jesus is the bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness so that when people look at him, the poison of the sins dealt with. Jesus is the one who fulfills all the Levitical law for us. Jesus is the one who spends 40 nights in the wilderness overcoming Satan, whereas Israel failed for 40 years. Jesus is the city of refuge that you run to when you failed and you've sinned. Jesus is the true redeemer that, that Boaz points to who rescues and redeems and shows mercy to people. Jesus is the king that Israel need. Jesus is the true and better David who didn't just defeat Goliath, but he defeated Satan. So like Israel, we follow him into battle and we enjoy the spoils of victory. We're not David facing our Goliaths. We're Israel cowering in the corner, following our victorious saviour. Jesus is the true and better David who, who gathers a bunch of ragtag followers and makes an army out of them. Jesus is the river that foreigners like Naaman come and dip in, not, not once, not seven times, sorry, but once to be cleansed. Jesus is the good shepherd of Psalm 23, is, is the king who reigns on the holy hill in Psalm 2, is the one in, in Psalm 22 who's forsaken. Jesus is the one whose glory fills the temple in Isaiah 6. Jesus is the one who, who's the suffering servant who's going to bring justice and, and who's not going to snuff out a smoldering wick and who's not going to break a bruised reed. Jesus is the ancient of days in Daniel who rules forever. Jesus is the faithful husband in Hosea who, who welcomes and rescues his bride who's adulterous. Jesus is the one who all the prophets spoke of. He's the sacrifice for sin. He fulfills all God's law. He fulfills all God's commandments. Imagine hearing that explained to you. And seeing it all. And then suddenly it hits them who it is that they're walking with. 
No, they still don't see it. They still don't put the dots together. They get home and they say to this stranger, come in for the night. You know, we've enjoyed his company, come in for the night. And they sit down and then Jesus breaks bread and it hits them. It's Jesus. He's alive. And then he vanishes. I said, oh, I didn't our hearts, want our hearts going tense at dozen when he were talking to us about, about the Old Testament. Despite our slowness, Jesus is so patient with us, isn't he? He reveals who he is to us and, and eventually it says he opens our hearts, he opens our minds, he opens our eyes and we, we come to see who he is. And imagine Cleopas and his wife, he, he's gone now, but I, I know now, I know who it is. And straight away they get up, they just walked seven miles and now it's coming up to night time. That's here to Nuneaton and a bit more. And now they set off back to where they came from at night time. It's a 14-mile round trip. Isn't it encouraging to know that we're slow at learning? But Jesus takes his time with us. He's patient with us. For those who we're praying for, it's comforting to know, isn't he? He opens our hearts and he opens... All right. Thirdly, Jesus comforts and he builds up. We see that in verse 36 to 45. Cleopas and his wife, they race back to Jerusalem. They find the disciples and some of the other Jesus' followers. They're locked away because they're scared to death. They're upset. They're scared because if they killed Jesus, imagine what they might do to his followers, especially if they think that we've nicked his body. They're scared because they don't know what to do next. They've been following Jesus for three years and now he's gone and they don't know what to do. The one that they love, the one that they trust, it has been taken from. They're scared because they'd all ran away from Jesus at his hour of need and now they feel ashamed. They feel battered, they feel bruised. And Cleopas comes back to them and says, Jesus is risen. And it still doesn't seem to register. And then imagine it, imagine this, they're in a closed room, locked doors, and suddenly Jesus is there in the middle of them. And they're terrified. What's the first thing that Jesus says to them? You can imagine what they're thinking, can't you? You cowards. Where were you when it all kicked off? You ran off, didn't you? You wimps. You dimwits. How could you not see that I'd rise from the dead? How stupid are you? I've told you hundreds of times. Jesus' first words to him, he says, peace. Peace to you. Jesus' first words, the first thing Jesus wants his failed disciples to know isn't that he's angry with them, isn't that he's disappointed with them. He wants to comfort them and say, look, peace. Don't worry. Jesus is gentle and lowly. Jesus doesn't break bruised reeds or snuff out smoldering flaxes. Have you grasped that? I need to grasp it. That, that as Christians, it's good that we're disappointed in ourselves sometimes, but as Christians, Jesus' first instinct towards us, even when we sin, Jesus' first instinct towards us is an anger and disappointment. It's pity. 
Jesus' first instinct towards us is to comfort us when we sin. The first thing, Jesus, Jesus has got every reason to be angry with them. They've, they've denied him, they've betrayed him, they've run off from him. The cowards, the, the thick when it comes to understanding the scriptures, he's been with them and they've not grasped it. But he says, peace. I want you to know, lads, I'm not mad. I want you to know, listen, it's all going to be okay. He uses the word shalom. It means more than just peace. It means wholeness. It means completion. It means justice. Jesus is saying, look, everything's okay. Jesus has done everything needed for us to have peace with God. And he wants us to know it. He doesn't want us to be scared. He doesn't want us to be worried. He doesn't want us to wonder whether he loves us. The first thing he says to the people who failed him, peace. He's died to pay for our sin. He's risen to prove it. He's come to give us peace. And if we, if we trust in Jesus, you and me can say tonight, despite our sin, despite our multiple failures, even in our failures, Jesus comes to us and says, peace. I haven't, I haven't turned my back on you. Peace. On, on your worst day, after committing your worst sin as a Christian, you're just as much at peace with God through Jesus as you are after your most productive day as a Christian. After your vilest day and you're so disappointed in yourself, what's Jesus going to say to you? Peace. We've got to grasp that. We've got to grasp that Jesus' attitude towards us, Jesus' instinct towards us is peace. Wouldn't be if we weren't in Christ, but if we're in Christ, it's peace. I've got peace with God because of the finished work of Jesus and, and God's first reaction to me, even when I sin and fail and fall, isn't anger and disappointment, it's pity and compassion. Jesus could have cast them off, that let him down, but he knows our frame, he knows we're but, but dust, his instincts towards us is love, and even with his disciples, he says, look, peace. He comforts them and he builds them up. The spirit's broken. First of all, he eats with them. And then he lets them touch his wounds. I think one day, we'll touch Jesus' wounds. I think he'll welcome us into to, to heaven with a big smile, and as we see him, we'll see the wounds on his hands. And I don't say that to be fancisome. Jesus' resurrection body was perfect, but it had wounds. He ate and drank it with a real body, but he had wounds. What, why did Jesus' resurrected body have wounds because they're a mark of honor i don't know whether you saw in the paper i think about a year ago that little lad in america uh, and a dog had attacked his sister and he fought the dog off and he had stitches all over his face they're great wounds aren't they he's not going to get bullied about those wounds because those are glorious wounds praise god for the glorious wounds of jesus because of how he got them Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side, those wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified. And this risen Lord Jesus, he spends the next 40 days encouraging and building up and strengthening and showing peace to his disciples, strengthening them for what lies ahead. And then finally, the fourth thing I want us to see is he calls us to go and serve. We see it in verse 46 to 53. Do you see the progression? Jesus meets us where we are, 
and walks alongside us. He opens our eyes and our hearts to see him. He comforts us and builds us up. And then he says, all right, I want you to go and serve. After Jesus has spent 40 days with them, after he's, he's done with them what he did with the other two and showed them all about himself from the scriptures, he then explains about all the things that have got to be fulfilled. Look at what he says in verse 46. Thus it is written, thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are my witnesses of these things. I'm going to use you lot for this. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Tarry, wait in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. See, it didn't end with Jesus' resurrection. In many ways, that's where it began. Jesus' resurrection was a massive milestone in, in biblical theology, in redemptive history. It brought the kingdom of God in. But that kingdom now needs to spread. And Jesus spells it out to these, these same fearful group of failures. Jesus says, you're the ones that I'm going to use. You're the ones that's going to take the message about me into all the world. Jesus said, you're the one, you're going to take the message that Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, you need to repent, you need to turn to him. And we see in the last couple of verses in, in Luke that then Jesus returns to heaven, but that's not the end. When Jesus returns to heaven, he, he instructs his followers, he says, wait in Jerusalem, I'll send the Holy Spirit, he'll give you the power to do everything that you need. And we know how it goes, don't we? As I said, after we finish 2 Samuel, we're going to go back to Acts. Acts is Luke, part 2. The gospel goes out in Luke, doesn't it? It goes out in the power of the Spirit. It starts in Jerusalem, through Judea to Samaria, and into the whole world. And 2,000 years later, the gospel spread to us. It worked. The commission that Jesus gave his disciples worked. We're now in the penultimate stage of God's plan for this world Jesus has been promised Jesus has been and suffered and died and risen and ascended the gospel's gone out virtually now to the whole world what's left the only thing left now is for Jesus to return it really could be today that we're not waiting for anything else to happen but until then, he gives this commission, keep going, keep serving, keep being witness as of me. Make Jesus known, speak for him, live for him. That's God's plan. He meets us where we are so we, we can do that. He, he, he opens our eyes and opens our hearts, he comforts us, he builds us up, he calls us then, go and serve me. And, and I think those four things act as stages, they're, they're like the, the stages of Christian development, aren't they? But I don't think it's always linear. There are times when we're fired up to serve, but then there are other times after we've been fired up to serve, life hits us and we're disappointed and we're back at stage one. I've been there. You've been there. We need to be comforted again. We need to be built up again. I know that's, that's so true. I know I've shared bits of, of my journey in my Christian life, but two, three years ago, I, I had a very difficult emotional time. I, I couldn't see... I don't know whether I had some kind of mini breakdown. I don't know. Because all the components were there, but I, I managed to keep functioning. I managed to keep preaching on a Sunday, but I felt like a zombie. 
I had no sense of, of the Lord's presence, no sense of his help. I had his promises. And I look back now and I can see Jesus was with me when I didn't know. And he carried me along and I, and I couldn't see it, but he, he walked with me when, when, my, when my heart was heavy. And there's been other times when, when he's opened my eyes and I've seen the bigger picture of things. I think of the times like last year when I read that book, Gentle and Lowly, and, and, and through reading that book, the Lord showed me how much he loves me. And my eyes were opened. And maybe I'll go back to a disappointed place, but I know the Lord will go back there with me. But it's taken time for me personally, but, but maybe now the, the Lord's calling me and he's, call, he's calling you and he's saying, look, now's the time to get stuck in and serve and do things. Maybe we'll need some more building up first, but, but it's okay because he's with us in that. Do you see, we're all on this road. I think we all, our Christian life spent traveling back and forth on the Emmaus Road. Needing comfort, learning about Jesus, getting fired up. I don't know which one of the four do you, do you feel you're at tonight. Well, if you're fired up, do something about it. But remember, there are those who are fearful and need building up. In my experience, I can say this, even if I always felt it, the risen Lord Jesus has always been with me. His resurrection sealed it. Even when I fail, he says, peace to me. Peace, Ben, because, listen, we'll, we'll get back. Peace, Ben, because there's time. Peace, Ben, because you don't stand or fall based on whether you stand or fall. You stand or fall based on what I've done. I hope and pray that you can see from our time in Luke's gospel, Jesus can be trusted. We can't, but Jesus can be. There's no king like King Jesus. There's no one like Jesus who cares for the broken and the needy and the weak and who, who says peace to people who failed him. There's no one like Jesus who uses people like us for his glory. And his resurrection brings us peace and it, and it calls and it, and it fuels our mission. And through his resurrection, Jesus says, he says two things to us now. He says both, both these things to us. He says, peace and go and serve me. Father, we thank you for what we've been able to glean from looking at Luke's account of the good news about you. We thank you for the type of people all the way through the book that we've seen that you use. You chose the shepherds to be the first witnesses of your birth. You chose women who, who had no reputation to be the first witnesses of your resurrection. You chose a teenage girl from a, a rough part of Israel to, to bear your son. You chose a barren old couple to have John the Baptist. You chose disciples who would fail you. And yet still you speak peace to them and restore them. We thank you for the type of God that you are. The one that is gentle and lowly and cares for us and speaks peace to us we thank you for Jesus' perfect life in our place we thank you for his death on the cross that took every ounce of your wrath against us we thank you for his resurrection that both gives us new life when we die and new life 
every day. And we pray we would be those who are comforted and built up by the knowledge that you're with us. We want to be those, Lord, who are going and serving. And we want to be that. But we thank you that when we're not, you say peace to us and you're patient with us. Lord, we ask that you would keep speaking to us through your word. Keep chipping away at us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your mercy towards us. Amen. I want to sing one more glorious song as we close. Where, O grave, is your victory?